we assemble on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. And every Lord's Day is a day of mixed emotions. Today has especially been the case. Uh, you, we come together to rejoice with those who rejoice as those who have just gotten back from the Jamaica trip. We, we, we come together to mourn with those who mourn uh, as we have in just the prayer before us for baby Rhett's family and the heartache that they're going through. My, my emotions have been on a roller coaster this morning. My uh, two of my grandsons are here today, my son and daughter-in-law, and that's always a time of great joy. Uh, Jim did a great job with communion. I don't know how many of you know Jim Burkhart here, but uh, Jim is a first cousin to my roommate from college. Uh, my best friend besides June was in my marriage, and so when Jim, and they favor each other, except the fact that Jim is about six foot tall, and his cousin's a little bit shorter than I am, so you can see the difference there but rejoice with that. And, and then the songs that we've sung, the communion thoughts we've had. And so, yeah, that's what we do because we're a family of God's people and we share in all those emotions. We're fixing to switch to a, a very, very different emotion here as we listen to Jesus. Be very un-Jesus if that is possible. Uh, Jesus is coming close to the end of his life. We're in the book of Matthew as we look at uh, lessons from, from the gospel of Matthew, from the master disciple maker. And of course, we've been beginning with questions each week. And, and what I'm trying to do as we go through the book of Matthew is to give you an outline of the life of Jesus in your head so that if somebody comes up and asks you a question like this, in what chapter do you find John the Baptist baptizing Jesus? You'll be able to say, well, that's in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. The first two chapters are his birth. Chapter 3 is about his baptism. And, and then you have, of course, the question that I've asked over and over again. In what chapters do you find the Sermon on the Mount? The greatest sermon ever preached, without a doubt. And it's found in the gospel of Matthew. And it's found in three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Matthew does that for us. He loves to say, if you want to study the sermons of Jesus, look at the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to study the parables of Jesus, come over to Matthew chapter 13, and there's the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds and the parable of the great treasure. I mean, you get all of those all put together in one chapter in Matthew's gospel. Or question number four, in what chapter does Peter confess Jesus of being the Christ? And Stan preached on this about month and a half ago, and it's the very center of Matthew's gospel. I mean, it's the most important question that is asked, who do men say that I am? And then he turns, of course, to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, what about you? What about you? And I'm reminded when I was a youth minister, I, I wanted to ask every single kid in my youth group a very simple question. What's your answer to that question? Who is Jesus to you? And we all need to answer that. And that's found in chapter 16, the very heart of this book. And then we're in the last week of Jesus' life. That's where we're at right now. And the last week of Jesus' life takes anywhere from about a quarter of the gospel to John's gospel where it takes almost a half of it. I mean, that last week we know more about it than any other aspect of Jesus' life. And so the question in Matthew is, in what chapter does Jesus make his triumphant entry and begin this last week of his life? And that's in found in chapter 21 all the way through chapter 28 as we look at the last week of Jesus' life. 
Now today we're in chapter 23. As I mentioned a moment ago, chapter 23 is the most un-Jesus that you find Jesus. Now I know you're saying you can't be un-Jesus. I, I get that. But when you're reading the Gospels, and if you've come and you've watched The Chosen on Sunday night, you see a Jesus who's incredibly compassionate, who loves sinners, who, who eats with tax collectors, who receives people who are, you know, the outcast of society, who touches lepers and opens the eyes of the blind and heals the lame, even within the walls of the temple. Here's a Jesus who stands out for his incredible love for people. But it's the last week. And he is dealing with some problems in Israel that need to be dealt with. And you find a very different Jesus. You go back to chapter 21 and he begins to tell these parables. And they're parables of judgment. And what's fascinating is, is at the end of some of them, it says that the Pharisees and the scribes knew he was talking about them. In other words, they read between the lines. You don't have to read between the lines in chapter 23. Jesus is as straightforward and as blunt as we ever hear him. An entire chapter of Jesus saying, listen, I've got something to tell you, and you're not going to like it, but here it goes. And so beginning in chapter 23, he begins with a fascinating comment, speaking to the crowds, okay? He's talking to the crowds, but he's talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so he begins by saying the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Now put very simple, if this had been a synagogue in the first century, right up front here would have been a seat like this right here. This is a replica of a seat that was discovered. The original's in the Israeli Museum. And carved in it simply are the words, Moses' seat. Okay? And, and in the synagogue, you would get up to read Scripture. They would stand to read. But once they had read, they would sit down to preach. And you go, why? You can preach longer that way. Now, joking, joking. That's just how they taught. I mean, Jesus goes up on the mountain and does what? Sits down. I love every time they depict Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Chosen does it. The video uh, called the Matthew uh, video does it. They always have Jesus going up on the Mount, and instead of sitting down, he stands up. Every one of them does it. I mean, the Chosen. Y'all remember the Chosen? If you saw the Chosen, Jesus is standing up all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. No, he sat down. That's the way you taught back then. And so... They sit in Moses' seat, and then he says something really strange to them. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. In other words, Jesus says they still speak the law, and they speak it correctly. No matter how much you may dislike a preacher, or an elder, or a deacon, or a Sunday school teacher... I mean, you may know things about them that you're like, they're not qualified to teach. At the same time, if they're simply setting forth the word of God, we need to respect that. And that's what Jesus says. The Pharisees, the scribes, they were the ones that were the preachers in the local synagogues. They were the ones that the people went out and listened to every Sabbath day. And Jesus says, listen, because they sit in Moses' seat, you need to do everything they say. God's word is authoritative no matter who teaches it. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But then he says this, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. 
Those are haunting words to me. Haunting words. I had an old friend years ago. He's gone to be with the Lord now. But he used to say all the time, every Christian struggles with a certain amount of hypocrisy. Everyone does. No one lives up to the calling of God. The only one who ever did it was Jesus. And I hear people sometimes say, preachers, if you can't practice it, don't preach it. If that was the case, there wouldn't be much preaching. I'm being very serious here. Do I strive to practice it? I do. Do I fall short just like you do? We all do. And so we're dealing here with this subject of hypocrisy, recognizing that there are certain amounts of that in all of us, oftentimes in hidden places, oftentimes very much in the open. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. I mean, I mean he's saying, listen, these, these Pharisees and scribes, boy, they love to get you you know, working, but they're always going to be supervising, right? I mean, you ever driven down the road and, and see work going on, you know, at a site somewhere and, and there's like 10 people standing around with one guy in the hole digging? You know, you look at that and you're like, something's wrong with that picture. Well, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. There's something wrong with that picture. And Jesus over in Matthew 11, it says, can I tell you the difference between me and them? They want to put heavy burdens on you. My burden, however, is light. So you got a choice. Be weighed down by all the unnecessaries or follow me where the burden is light. Everything they do is done for people to see. Again, this whole sermon was painful for me because I I think all of us get caught in these traps. Like I said, my, my kids were in today, and, and uh, they sleep in the back bedroom, and they sleep back next to the bedroom where my dress shirt and my ties are. And so when I got up early, early this morning, they were still asleep. I didn't want to wake them up. I threw on a polo shirt, got to the building, texted June, bring me a shirt and tie. June showed up, and I said, where's my shirt and tie? She said, what are you talking about? I said, I texted you about a shirt and tie. She said, you look fine. But let me tell you how bad it was. John walks in, the first thing he does, looks at me and says, are you preaching today? (laughs) Rodney did the same thing. Rodney looks at me and says, and I knew what they were saying. You don't have a coat and tie on. No, I don't. It's my grandkids' fault. No. (laughs) We're always concerned about how people will judge the way we look. He says of the Pharisees, they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. If you, if you don't know what a phylactery is, this is a phylactery right here, what this guy's wearing on his head. Okay, this is an Orthodox Jew. And, and you'll see some more scattered in the back. And, and the reason they wear that is because Deuteronomy 6 tells them to wear it. I mean, Jesus very likely wore phylacteries, just like this guy did. And notice on his arm right here, his left arm, you've got the leather. If you'll notice up a little high is another box. That also has, both of those boxes have scripture in them. 
Because God says, I want my word to be in front of you all the time. You tie it on the top of your head. You put it on your forearms. You put it on your doorpost. I want God's word present in your life all the time. And that's what they're doing. Jesus is not condemning phylacteries. What he's condemning is when you come to church and your phylactery is a lot bigger than everybody else's. And everybody's like, wow, I wonder how many scriptures are in that phylactery. Boy, he must be serious about the word of God. Kind of remind me of the 70s. Some of y'all lived this. Y'all remember back when ties were this wide? Y'all remember that? Man, we got back in the day where ties just kept getting wider and wider and wider and wider. And it was like, who can get the widest tie? And then all at once, before long, they were starting to go short again. You know, I mean, we do that from time to time. And Jesus says, don't be like that. He says they love the place of honor at banquets, the most important. They want to be in the amen corner when they're in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. They love being called rabbi, which means teacher. So Jesus says, don't do it. Don't call people rabbi. Why? Because you've got one teacher. That's Jesus. You're all brothers. And he says, not only that, don't call anyone father, for you have one father in heaven, and don't call anyone instructors, because the Messiah is your instructor as well. Now, titles are appropriate in educational institutions. I mean, we all go to college, and we study under Dr. So-and-so and and Dr. So-and-so. We have one of the great teachers from Lipscomb here, Dr. Rodney Cloud. But what I love about this brother is that when he comes to church here, guess what most people call him? Rodney. I mean, that's what he's known. Even though he's got a degree, advanced degree, still here at this church, we all simply call Brother Rodney. You know. And that's all that, that, that Jesus is trying to say is don't elevate people because somehow, you know, they're higher up spiritually. How many of y'all remember Father McKay? You know, from MASH. This is from MASH. I, June and I, when we were in graduate school years ago, we, we loved MASH. We'd watch MASH every, every week. And Father McKay, he was, you know, the religious leader there. And everybody called him Father. And the problem is, is that Jesus is saying, don't do that. I mean, the very people that claim to follow Jesus end up violating the very thing that Jesus says. And I used him because he's an actor, okay? We all recognize that. The greatest among you has got to be your servant. And whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and the humble will be exalted. And with that, Jesus then says, all right, I've got seven things I want to say to, about the Pharisees and the scribes. And he begins with what's called a series of woes, okay? All kind of emulating something comes out of Isaiah 5 when Isaiah did the same thing hundreds of years earlier. Now, woe, what does the word woe mean? Well, if you grew up in the country like I did back in Mississippi, I mean, you, you, you know, you had horses and you had mules. My dad used to talk about plowing all the time. And, and, and so when daddy would say to us boys, whoa, we knew what he meant. What he meant was stop. Stop what you're doing. And that's what these seven woes are. They're, they're Jesus saying to the religious leaders of his day, you need to stop doing what you're doing because it doesn't help. And so let's look at these seven woes. Woe number one. Woe to the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and you yourselves do not enter and you don't let people who want to enter in. The Pharisees were notorious for this. 
You got to remember that not only did God send Jesus, but before Jesus, he sent, the John, he sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Messiah. Luke states point blank that the Pharisees refused to be baptized by John. Evidently, they'd got together as a group and they said, listen, we're not going down to the Jordan. This guy's not going to immerse us. We know the law. We don't know who he is. And so when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3, inquiring about the kingdom of God, Jesus says to Nicodemus, listen, you're a Pharisee. You need to be born again. He said, okay, I don't understand. How do I go back into my mother's womb? And he says, no, 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 no. You need to be born of water and the Spirit. Now, the Spirit would come later. John's very clear about that in his gospel. But, but being immersed in water was already going on. In fact, Jesus, Peter, Andrew, James, John, the apostles were involved in a baptismal ministry even during the time of Jesus' ministry. Go read the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 of John. And Jesus is simply saying to this incredible Pharisee, y'all are not going in, and unfortunately you're blocking others who's following your example. How many times have we done something that someone saw, said something someone heard, simply watched an attitude that we had, knowing that we claim to be followers of Jesus, and their response is, if that's what Christianity is like, I don't want any part in it. You see, it's easy to fall in this trap. We lock the door. We may not mean to. But we padlock the door to the kingdom of God by the way we re- represent the kingdom of God to the world. And that's what the Pharisee scribes were doing. Woe number two. Woe to you, Torah scholars, Pharisees. I'm coming out of the tree of life version. Hypocrites, for you travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of Gehenna as you are. Now, most translations translate that a son of hell. I've gone back to the, to the uh, uh, Jewish version. That's what this is, is a Jewish, Messianic Jewish translation. Because if, if you translate it hell, you don't appreciate what Jesus is saying. Jesus most likely is standing up on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is huge. But if you stand over in Solomon's Colonnade, which is on the south side of the temple, you're standing up there. You can go over to the side, look off the temple. The temple faces east. Okay, the, the opening of the temple faced east toward the Mount of Olives. But if you go to the south side of it and look over, there's a big valley. The Kidron Valley runs into a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom is where we get the word Gehenna. It simply means Valley of Hinnom. And, and it's where a lot of the pagan temples Solomon built were located. But it's also where so many people were dumped during the first destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. It was literally a horrible place in the mind of the Jews. And here's Jesus saying, you go and make converts, but these converts are going to simply enter, you know, end up down here in the garbage dump in Gehenna. I mean, it, they're no better off after you make converts of them than they were before. And once again, we have to ask all of ourselves the question, what are we converting people to? I mean, is it to Jesus Christ or is it to our way of seeing Jesus Christ? Woe number three. Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. 
But who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? One of the problems the Jews had in Jesus' day is that how you swore determined whether or not you had to keep your oath. Okay? He goes on, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift in the altar, he's bound by that oath. He says, really? Because what Jesus was dealing with is what a lot of us did as kids. Y'all remember when you were in elementary school and you had to make a promise? You didn't have to keep it when you did what? He says, listen, all of this works together. You can't do this. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. <laughs> you know, don't have to. My fingers were crossed. I mean, I remember as a kid, we'd sit there with all of our group kids in the neighborhood, and we'd start making promises, and the first thing you'd do is, all right, let me see your fingers. I mean, we, we'd tell them, bring your fingers out. Your legs crossed. And, of course, they'd always say, I crossed my eyes. Y'all remember that one? Some of y'all are going... Where'd you grow up? That's beside the point. A lot of us did that growing up. Only problem is we were kids. These were adults. And Jesus says it doesn't work. You can't lie and then cover it up as if somehow it's honorable. Woe number four. Woe to you teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I mean, I love that last illustration. I mean, it was so vivid back in that world. Most of us don't have camels today. But I mean, we, you know, that, that, that image is here. He says, you're over here meticulously you know, tithing your herbs in your little herb garden over here. And at the same time over here, you're, you're not treating the widows like you should. You're not taking care of the orphans. You don't care whether or not social justice exists or not. And he says, the end result is this right here. I love this picture. You got the little strainer there with all the gnats trying to get rid of them and you're swallowing a camel for heaven's sake. That's the image Jesus wanted us to see. ever notice the things we fight over in church? I've always been amazed by it. We were remodeling a church I was working at, and that particular church had two sets of pews, okay? The only problem is the pews were about twice the length as these. I mean, if you got over in the middle of one of those pews, it took you an hour to get out on Sunday mornings. And if you had to go to the restroom, you were toast. And, of course, everybody that came in would sit on the ends. You know, if you had a full house, you had visitors right over in the middle going, how do I get out of here? And so we remodeled the church building. And instead of having two rows of pews, we made three rows of pews. Shorter pews so that you could get out. One here, one here, one here. You know what happens when you make three sets of pews instead of two sets with an aisle down the middle? All the sisters who have daughters getting married come down on you. Where's the center aisle? My daughter's going to walk down. Well, we've got two center aisles. No, you don't. I mean, I thought there was going to be a revolt. And I'm like, are you getting mad over... Are you serious? Yes, they were serious. 
I mean, so oftentimes the stuff we fight over, brethren, is ridiculous. And, and, and I mean, we get caught. We're not fighting over the deity of Jesus. And that's the whole point Jesus is making. I mean, are details important? Yes, but they are not the main thing that you've got to keep the main thing or else you mess up everything. Woe number five. Woe to you teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside it's full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside, and then the outside will be clean. How many of y'all have experienced this? Have you at a restaurant? If you drink coffee, you have. I promise you, I have. I mean, the waiter comes up, puts a cup down, goes to get the coffee. You look inside the cup and go, uh-uh. No, no, you need to get me a new cup. They're like, why? And I said, look inside. And they go, oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, none of us want a cup that looks like that if we're going to drink coffee, right? And yet Jesus says a lot of religious people are like that. They look good on the outside. They say all the right words on Sunday morning. But follow them to work on Monday morning. They, they sing praises to God on Sunday morning then take his name in vain on Monday morning. We've all seen it. And some of us have done it, right? How many of us today, on the way after church, will get mad because the waiter or waitress at the restaurant won't get it to us fast enough, and yet we've been proclaiming God and how much we need to influence people, and yet we're going to get upset at them? Or the person at the red light simply doesn't move fast enough when we get ready, you know, the light turns green. I've been there. What about the inside? Woe number six. Woe to the teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. Look beautiful outside, but in the inside. Can I ask how many of you know what this is? Anybody? New York City. Look how patriotic. Isn't that beautiful? That's Grant's tomb, largest mausoleum in North America for Ulysses S. Grant and his wife. Beautiful building, just two dead people inside. That's what Jesus was saying. He used a very similar one in woe number seven. He says, what do you teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites? You build tombs for the prophets, decorate the graves of the righteous, and say, boy, if we had lived back in, in days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part in killing the prophets. And Jesus says, so you testify that your descendants of those who killed the prophets. In other words, you chase back your genealogy. It's your great, 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 great granddaddy is the one who helped kill, you know, Zechariah, the son of Beriah. And so Jesus says, you snake, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape the condemnation of Gehenna? Going back to the tree of life version. He says, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and Torah scholars. Some of them you'll kill, execute at the stake. Some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city. And so will come upon you all the righteous blood that's been shed from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar, according to Jewish legend. It was the Day of Atonement. And, and Zechariah literally was inside the temple between the altar and, and uh, uh, let's see, between the altar and, and the curtain of the temple. And, and there they murdered him. The priest murdered him. And he says, truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Now I put this in highlight simply for a reason. Next week we're in chapter 24. It is just this amazing chapter.
of coming destruction. And he's going to say the exact same thing in that chapter. This is coming on this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, stone those sent to you. I wanted to bring you like a, a mother hen brings her chicks in. Any of y'all ever sang this? Isn't that great? That mother hen with all, I don't know how many chicks are under. I couldn't count all the legs. But she's protecting those. And Jesus says, that's what I wanted to do for you. But you wouldn't. And so your house is left to you desolate. We'll see what that means next week. So next week, this week, in preparation, read Matthew 24. It's a tough read. Read Matthew 24. This week, do some honest evaluations. We don't need to have hypocrisy in our life. We'll never weed out all of it. I understand that. But examine yourselves, Paul said. See whether or not how you're coming along in the faith. And have the courage to call hypocrisy out. First, beginning with yourself. And then, if need be, with others. And finally, pray for those who struggle to find hope. We live in a world filled with hopelessness. People desperately need hope. Let's pray for those who are looking for hope. And if you have a need, we have elders that will be in both the front and the back foyer. June and I will be greeting right back here in the front foyer, right in the middle this morning. If you have a need, come see us. We'll be glad to help you. And I'll be down front as well right now if you have a need. I'll stand and sing.